Last year was, it was devastating. We saw the consequences and it was terrifying. And so what I did in this situation is just being even more determined than what I'm usually am, because you see this, this disaster around you and all you can think about, we need to find a solution, we need to find a solution. I did not think about failure. I did not think about success. All I thought about is we have to come up with something that stops this pandemic. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Welcome to our Women's History Month series on Skimmed from the Couch, where we're telling you about the women who made history this past year. Today, our guest is Dr. Katherine Jansen. She is the Senior Vice President, Head of Vaccine Research and Development at Pfizer. As many of you no doubt know, Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine was authorized in the U.S. in December of 2020. Catherine was the woman in charge of leading that lightning-fast effort to get a COVID vaccine from a lab into people's arms. And the COVID vaccine isn't the only revolutionary vaccine that Dr. Jansen has developed during her career. She has also led the development of the HPV vaccine, Gardasil, which is credited as a revolutionary vaccine for women. We are so excited to have you with us. Welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. Thank you for your nice introduction. Well, on behalf of literally everyone, we just want to say thank you for your work. Let's start off with what is something that we can't Google about you or can't find on your professional bio that we should know? Well, you start with a difficult question. <laughs> I usually don't Google myself. What is not probably widely, widely known is just how I went through my career. Yeah. Uh, because I think that may be interesting for a future scientist or future leader in yeah. this in this profession. And I think I would start to say that while one has a general idea what one would like to do with one's life, and in my case, I was really working in the kind of space of science and medicine with the idea to develop drugs or vaccines that would keep individuals healthy and improve the, the health of everyone globally. I think other than that, which was a quite vague idea of where one wants to be, I think uh, what I learned is that you cannot really work towards this in a very straightforward way. What I realized is that to do this, I think one has to be ready for opportunities. Sometimes one has to do detours to get to where, where I'm, for example, am today. So in my, my case, I studied actually working during my PhD on bacteria that live without oxygen and studied their their pathways. I then ended up in a biophysics laboratory for my postdoc, where I did something completely different, where I learned how to express proteins, receptor proteins, actually, that you find in the brain in a, a simple yeast cell. From there, I went on and worked with a very talented immunologist on yet something completely different. 
And so, but I think what, what all of this did is I, as I call it sometimes, you learn a lot of tricks. You really accumulate a lot of experience and experiences that are quite different. So they, they set you up in a way to have many more opportunities than if you focus too early, too soon in your career on maybe on a very narrow area. For those who, who think like everything needs to be in your head right from the get-go and you have to have this really linear career path, I mean, the good news is that's actually not the case. The more flexible you are and the more you're open to opportunities and, and sometimes luck that presents itself, the better, the better you are off. At least that was my experience. I think that's such great advice uh, and a perspective to give because I feel like when you get to a point in your career where you're able to talk to audiences about what you've done, it often comes across like, oh, this is what I wanted to do since day one. And I knew this was exactly the path and I stayed on it. And for many of us, it isn't linear. I want to find out about what were you like growing up? Your parents were chemists. Is that what kind of pushed you into medicine? Yeah, so my parents never influenced me based on their own careers at all. As a matter of fact, that was almost like a deterrent uh, for me to, to get in the same profession. And I can explain this a little later why this was the case. But I think what they did influence me very much with is they, they put a lot of emphasis on education. I remember that there were incentives for me to do well and very many d different interests as a, as a child growing up. And one of the things that I really loved to do was riding horses. Now, when my parents took off from, from East Germany, they essentially started with nothing. So there was never a lot of money going around. So if I wanted to do something, it was pretty expensive at the time to get a single, even a single horse riding lesson. It meant I had to find a way to to support this. And so I like this incentive of actually doing well in school because what usually happened is uh, there was a reward attached to it. And so I accumulated my Daymark, which was a currency at the time in Germany. And if I had my 15 Daymark together and have another horse riding lesson, well, I jumped on my bicycle and off I went and had my horse riding lessons. But to come back to the background that my, my parents had, and so when, when I kind of had it in my head that I wanted to go into science, and I had to make at one point a decision, should it be science or medicine? And at that time, I thought, I'll, I'll go to the science career path. My parents actually tried to discourage me from it, and it came out of the experience that they had working for companies that at that time, there were very, very few women that were working in companies in, in leadership positions. And so they thought that I would have a terrible hard time. So they tried to persuade me to maybe go into something different that uh, was more, I guess, dominated by, by females. And uh, mm -hmm. I essentially said, I'm not interested in this. So I like science. I like medicine. That's what I want to do. So if it means I have to work harder and, you know, do whatever it, it takes to, to compete, that's, that's fine with me. Do you think that you were more apt to go into it eyes wide open, being a young woman going into a career that, as you said, didn't have a lot of women in it, especially in the top positions from your parents' warnings? Initially in my career, so when I, when I started out at university and I studied biology and microbiology, it was very interesting because half of the class that I was in were female. So I actually to be honest, in the beginning, never thought about this. 
I just didn't because I was surrounded by equal amounts of, of females and males and it, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't a topic so much in my day-to-day -day interaction with, with the exception of this one very unfortunate experience that I had when we visited actually a, a German company with my, my colleagues. And there was this leader who showed us around who looked at the females and essentially said, I don't understand why you were even bothering to get a, a PhD. You, you will never work in that profession anyway. You will, you know, get married, have kids, and that will be the end of it. And it was, I mean, that was like a shock. I mean, my, my mouse dropped. That was a single situation. It had a lot of impact on me. Do you think then that the landscape has changed since your parents were warning you of what you may encounter? I think it has changed some, but not everywhere. And I think part of the reason why at the end I stayed in the United States was because there were many more opportunities for women than there would have been in the science and medicine uh, arena than in Germany where I grew up. And so I would say today still, while the situation got better, I still think in industry, the women underrepresented in, in leadership um, positions, they are under, underrepresented in positions of leading even companies, bio, biotech companies, it's real, a relatively small proportion of, of women that are in those positions. So I think there in the United States is probably much more equality and to, to, to allow talented women to rise through the ranks and into important leadership positions. I want to talk about failure. In your line of work in drug development, there's a, a lot of trial and error, obviously. Over 90% of all medicine that starts human study ends up failing. How tough is that to think about so much of what you do fails until obviously in your career, you get two huge things that end up being game-changing successes. How do you encounter failure in your day-to-day? -day? Yeah, that's an interesting, an interesting question, Danielle, because I think from my perspective, one has to learn failure, I think, early in one's career uh, to know that things don't work exactly the way that uh, you perceive them. And again, I can tell you an anecdote from, from my yeah. own personal life that had to do with my PhD thesis. So I was happily working away. Everything was just going great. And I'm nearing towards the end of my thesis time and the last experiments needed to be done. And all of a sudden, I realized that the metabolic pathway that I was working on, all of a sudden, the data didn't connect with that pathway that I thought that the, in this case, I was working with bacteria, had actually. And it was literally one of the last couple of experiments and I was just devastated when the data came in and I checked the data and I checked the yeah. data and I said, this is real. This, this is, is all wrong. And I remember I ran into the, the office of my thesis advisor at the time. I was almost in tears and said, it's all wrong. Nothing is right. I completely wasted my time and I was just devastated. And he just laughed. <laughs> and I said, why is he so amused? And then he said, well, let's look at your data. And what turned out to be the case is that, okay, I, I failed in demonstrating that a particular pathway was indeed the pathway, but we had found another one. So in other words, it was salvageable, right? It was not black and white. It was a shade of gray. 
And it was still a discovery. The work was still done very well. There was a result. It was not that there was no result. And so what that, I think, early on taught me is that you will encounter those situations and you will work your way through it. And science is unpredictable often, as long as one has an open mind. So sometimes one starts something, and I think when one recognizes, hey, this is not going the right way, and maybe we are completely on a wrong track, there are choices to be made. One of the choices is you just go on and ignore it, which the worst thing one can do. Or you say, well, do I have to redirect? And is there maybe another aspect, and I can get to the finish line? And the third one is to just say, well, I don't want to waste my time on this. I'll start something new. And that's another experience that made that I made very early on it when I actually, before I started to work on, on Gardasil, I was hired not to work on Gardasil, but on another program that was actually not even a vaccine-related program. I was supposed to look at, I think it was a diabetes target or something like mm-hmm. this. The data looked actually in my mind, too good to be true anyway. But mm. so we started working on it. And after six months, I, we debunked it and there was nothing there. And so I remember taking this and said, okay, we are done. <laughs> <laughs> You're done. You chose the third path. Yes. And I said, and by the way, we want to work on, on the cervical cancer vaccine because I think we have all the right tools and we are the right group to do this. And he essentially said, okay, go do it. So let's talk about Gardasil. And I'm, I'm happy you brought up that point that you were working on something that didn't work and that the next thing you worked on was Gardasil. In reading about your story, it, it was really remarkable to hear how much resistance and skepticism came up around that. How did you confront the naysayers, especially when it came from your own company at times? Yeah, so I think this is another lesson that I learned over the years, that when you're really convinced about something and you have the intuition that you may be on the right track, I think it's really important to stick to your guns. And I think sometimes this this what I call intuition. This comes out of what you have experienced, what, what you already have done, So it all comes together and you have this sense that the solution is in one direction, not in another direction, or that an approach is maybe more suited than another approach. So you kind of have this, it's almost like a gut feeling uh, where you want to go. And in this particular case, I was convinced that we could make this work. Not that I was 100% certain, but I had the intuition and the sense that the approach that we were using and the way we were approaching, we actually could make this work. And was that from the data that you were seeing, or was it from studying cervical cancer and the approaches to it in the past, and you felt like this was the right moment from research? When you talk about that intuition, and I think in any industry, there's always kind of this back and forth between what the science and I'll say like data and analytics are telling you and also what you just kind of feel and know. And that's so interesting to hear you talk about intuition. Yeah, so I think it's both, right? It's not completely uh, devoid of data. There was a lot of approaches in the past that did not work. And then there was a discovery in the early 1990s that all of a sudden opened up the field and showed there is actually a way to potentially address this virus and make a vaccine. 
And that discovery came out of an Australian laboratory. And we saw the data. We also were presented by a company that worked with this laboratory with an opportunity to collaborate. So you had all the failures in the past. You all of a sudden saw that something looked different than what has been done in the past. At least I had that sense that that would be the right approach. But I changed it actually in the process too. So what was presented to us I realized it was probably not the, the right technology approach, but the idea and the concept with an adaptation could very much lead to a successful vaccine. And so, see, this is where data together with this intuition and, and some experience that we had came all together. And then it clicked and said, that's it. And so the naysaying came out of more out of the approaches. Things like, even if it works, you can never demonstrate this. I mean, people had their opinions and opinions were very cheap and very numerous all around. And so I think you just have to filter this. You, you listen, you take it in, you think about this. And then it's, I have this binary thing, or maybe, yeah, mostly binary. It goes in the bucket of nah, or it goes on the bucket Maybe there's something there and not getting distracted in the process, because I think that's the worst thing. We, we, we see this every day, right? I mean, you look at the COVID situation right now and last year, everybody had an opinion and oftentimes people were wrong and, and that's okay. You can have an opinion. That's fine. But I think one has to get to the science. One has to look at the, the scientific evidence and stay on course. The worst thing is, to get distracted. So well, when you talk about your binary, you know, kind of approach to it, but I know that that at least is is very challenging at times in practice. Oh, absolutely. You can't do this on your own. Number one, it's just it's just one person and you you always work with with many colleagues. So yeah, you you have discussions, right? If something strikes you as this could be, you discuss it with your colleagues, with your scientists, you you discuss it with people that are also removed from the situation that you are in because one has to always be careful, right? So you want to have a a person that can give you advice that doesn't have any skin necessarily in the game because you get probably the best insights from such, such individuals. If you ask your friends, of course, they will agree with you. So that's nice, makes you feel good but it not necessarily puts you on the right track. I also have my husband as a scientist. So I, in the beginning and even today, I run stuff by him. So I ask him about things. So you seek also alliances, right? Not just that you, that you vet ideas, but you also seek alliances because sometimes it's a lonely game to go against the stream. So be the salmon that swims up the, the river, right? So you want to have individuals that, that see the world the, the way you see it. And when critical decisions are being made, I actually in a position to help you out, which requires also communication skills. I learned that a little bit later that you need to talk about what you're thinking and you need to let people into this conversation. And what is amazing if you do that when you come to those tough uh, situations where decisions are, are being made that could very well mean your program is going forward or not, that you then have the, the allies that, that come from their perspectives and yeah. how they are thinking to, to help you out. So I want to talk about COVID 
before you started developing the COVID vaccine, you talked about Gardasil and kind of the moment that you were in at that time of this is something that there've been different approaches and I want to tackle it. How did it compare to COVID, which obviously was affecting you as a person living in the world where we're seeing all of these scary headlines, but also as someone who your skill set is literally the front line of, of what we needed to start battling this. Yeah, so it was almost like a more difficult uh, decision because as you go on, as I mentioned earlier, you acquire a lot of information, you learn, you continuously learn, it never stops. And so at the Gardasil times, there weren't really as many options. So in other words, not many options that you had to choose from. When COVID came along, it was an, an unknown virus. There were a lot of unknowns. And so all of a sudden, after the year, you have experience with many different approaches and platforms, and that you're going through your head of what would be a best approach for a vaccine approach. And, and because of that, that urgency, there's not a lot of time to procrastinate, right? I mean, yeah. so you, you go through the motions and think, is this the right approach? Is that the right approach? What can we do? What do we have? I mean, we had every platform really that we could have chosen. We already were, were working on this. And so it was the same. It's just reject, keep, reject, keep. I am doing this interview. It's somewhat fortuitous, unfortunately. My husband, my five-month-old son, and myself, we all have COVID. And we are all in quarantine right now, so we don't have any childcare. And I know that trying to get better at the same time, uh, get my little one better, and also trying to keep up with work and feel better myself, it's so so much. And that's been the experience for millions of people throughout the world. When you took this on, emotionally, how do you prepare for that when the stakes are this high? Do you, does that fuel you or is that something you block out? So the, the devastation of COVID, and I'm sorry to, to hear yeah. that you actually yeah. got hit with it in, in your whole family. And I hope you, you will do well. Thank you. Last year was, it was, it was devastating. It was frightening. It was all the bad emotions that you can think about that one can go through was all there. And we were right in the middle of it because it was New York, right? I'm li living in New York with, with my husband. And so we saw the consequences and it was terrifying. And so what I did in this situation is just being even more determined than what I'm usually am because you see this, this disaster around you and all you can think about, we need to find a solution, we need to find a solution. So this became all consuming. I, I did not think about failure. I did not think about success. All I thought about is we have to come up with something that stops this pandemic. And so that gives you a lot of fuel to, to go through endless days and weeks. And you, you don't think about energy. You just have it. You, you just drive it out of this. This has to stop. This has to stop. And uh, I think that has fueled me and I think my colleagues uh, the same working, working on this vaccine. I mean, just very single-mindedly. Nothing, all of a sudden, nothing mattered. Nothing. It was all 
about getting a solution and developing this vaccine. And, and we hoped that we had picked right, that we had chosen the right approach, but we didn't waste any time on it thinking about this because we had set on the path and we were either successful or we won't. But what I know is if we wouldn't be successful, then nobody else would be either. And that, again, this was sheer determination that we have to be successful with this, no matter what it takes to get there. What was it like for you and for your team the moment that you found out just how effective the Pfizer vaccine really was? It was fantastic. It was a blissful moment uh, where all of a sudden, you just, as I always say, you felt this immense sense of relief that, you know, yes, we see the light at the end of the tunnel. We, we have the tool now to stop all of this. And of course, this was just one of the steps uh, towards it. We then had to make it to scale up the, the production. And so our manufacturing colleagues, they had to figure out how to take a process that was really a research process. And they had been working on this, but now to scale up production, not just for a few million, but to hundreds of millions of, of doses. So we, we already delivered by mid-February 40 million doses to the United States government. There's another 200 million, we will have 200 million by the end of March. And we have set this really aggressive goal to have over 2 billion doses by the end of 2021. And all of this Again, this is shifts slightly the emphasis. We have to support this product big time with, with additional clinical studies. We, we know that we need to uh, likely go down in age and project pediatric populations. Yes, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's still a lot to do, but it shifts. The emphasis shifts a little bit. The other piece, just while we are talking about this, which yeah. was, it didn't come so much as a surprise, but what came as a surprise is how quickly it happened. It's the whole um, question of the variants. So this virus can change. We knew it could change. Even in the beginning of last year, there was a, a mutation that spread very rapidly. It had no consequences in terms of vaccine um, efficacy or anything. But now we see that the virus gets more clever as it evades human immunity, potentially vaccine immunity, or it's trying to evade, I should say, because it hasn't really managed that yet because the data are very strong that at least when we look at our vaccine, we have very good data that those mutations we, we uh, cover very well. But I mean, that's something that we now have to get ahead. So this was the have an early warning system. When are the mutations coming that may escape vaccine protection? So we can't wait until that happens. So we yeah. need to have a system in place that, that allows us to, to deal with this before it happens. And so now we are looking at a number of different strategies. We put a system in place to, to allow us to have this early warning signs. And all of this needs to be built from scratch. We collaborating widely with, with others on this because it's a very big task. I know that you're in the thick of it, but do you think that we likely will need a, a booster of some sort or a third shot? 
Yeah, we're working on this right now. So we just started the first evaluation of a what we call a homologous booster. We do not yet know how long vaccine protection lasts. We hopefully have those data in a, in a few months where we get our first assessment potentially where we are. But we, again, this virus is a formidable enemy. So we are already thinking about ways if, let's say, the vaccine protection is not lasting for a long time, well, what do you do? So you think about boosters, and that's a very good way of kicking up the immunity again, usually works very well. We're asking the question, does a vaccine booster also takes uh, care even better of, of variants? Do we maybe have to look at a variant vaccine boost, so change the vaccine to a variant and then ask the question, would that look more potent? So those are all very important scientific questions that right now nobody has answers to. But again, you anticipate what can happen in the future without even having the, the data yet in your hand and then get ready and generate the data of what you need to do. For those listening who are nervous about getting the vaccine, either because of how you know fast it came out or for any reason, what would you say to them? What I would say is in general, number one, I got the vaccine. So, and many of my colleagues now, because everyone who was an essential uh, worker working on the vaccine and continues to work on the vaccine was eligible to receive the vaccine. So that's number one. That, that I think should reassure uh, people this this is the people who are developing and taking it themselves. That's a pretty good, I think, data point. And the other thing I would say to those individuals, yes, it was done very, very quickly, but it was done essentially the same way as we always develop vaccines. So we have an infrastructure in place that looks for quality. And even though we did it quickly, since we used many parallel steps, rather than sequential steps. This is why we were able to squeeze in time and really prioritize and everything else went to the wayside. So all of a sudden we became very single-minded and I would say was most of my workforce was working on this vaccine and that was true in other, in other groups as well. But we made a huge uh, decision to staff up, ramp up, hire more people and focus on getting this done and doing everything that we could do in parallel, which is unprecedented because usually it's a, it's a process. So you have research, you look at the research data, you make decisions, you then say, okay, this looks good enough. Now we go in the clinic. We take one candidate in the clinic. So if that doesn't work well, we go back and then we do it again. And then we go to the next stages of development. And while this is all happening, we really do not work on the production at this time, right? I mean, because uh, once products are in production. This is an enormous investment based on facilities, people. It's a whole huge infrastructure to get it done. But in this case, all of those activities started all at the same time when we joined the partnership with BioNTech. And that's really the difference. And the parallel development versus sequential development. Do you hope that's a model that you guys will, will continue to do going forward? I think it can be a model for things that really, really pressing and where there's a huge unmet medical need. I think in, way, in those situations, 
I think you can do it, but you need to you need to increase your infrastructure, right? Because what happened last year and it's still happening was it came at a cost. People working 24-7, nothing else matters. And even their own family, their health, their anything was all put aside. It was the single-mindedness we need to solve this problem. So I think if you if you scale it, then you can do a few of those, but not every program can be run this way. That that would be my prediction. But you know, certain programs that are really important, I think you you can you can clone it, so to speak. We're gonna to move to our last round, our lightning round. What's your biggest vice? My biggest vice. My biggest vice, I'm too honest. What is the last TV show you've binge watched? or streamed. Oh, I like Grey's Anatomy. I love Grey's Anatomy. And I'm so happy to hear someone that actually works in in science and the medical field say that. (laughs) What's the last book you read? Sapiens. I'm listening to it right now. I'm not making enough progress, to be honest. (laughs) Too little time. (laughs) It's tough to get through. That's why I've been saving it for car rides. When you got to celebrate the amazing achievements that you and your team had, this year, how did you do it? When we first heard the the results of our interim analysis, where I had a bottle of champagne with my husband on the Hudson that we where we were staying for a few days in a bed and breakfast. What was your first, very first job? I had many jobs when I grew up because you remember the horseback riding, so it needed yeah. to be financed. I think the very first one that I remember was actually a like an internship in the company that my my dad worked in so they always had those summer programs for the children of of employees and i worked in a warehouse of that company and i didn't like the order in that warehouse so i started to reorganize the warehouse so that everything would be found much easier i love that dr jansen thank you on on behalf of the whole human race for what you have been doing this year Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M.com. Two M's for a little something extra. 